Let me invite you now, if you have a Bible, to open it to Acts chapter 4 as we continue our journey through, uh, in many ways, one of the pivotal books of the New Testament as it shows us the new covenant being fulfilled in an already sense Uh, As we go through the book of Acts together, we see the realities of the new covenant promised in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel being fulfilled, and yet not being completely fulfilled because, as you know, and we tell you often, we live between the tension of the already of the kingdom, but also the not yet. But the days of restoration, of God fulfilling those prophecies in the Old Testament are upon us in great power. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus's This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them uh, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, I do pray today that as we take our time going through this text that your spirit would enlighten the eyes of our heart and enable them to see the beauty and glory and suitability of Jesus Christ for our souls. And we pray that you would speak to us as your servants, Lord, because we are listening. 
And we pray that you might capture us today uh, by what is said in your word and that we would be different people because we've heard the word of the Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first three chapters of the book of Acts shows us the enormous power and resources given to the church. First, there is an intensive 40-day training of the foundational leaders, the apostles, by the risen Christ. And I cannot overestimate how, sh how shaping and powerful that teaching was and that training was because we hear it coming out in every sermon in the book of Acts we see that they got a real solid biblical theological understanding uh, of the Old Testament through this time with Christ. Secondly, there is the outpouring and giving of the Holy Spirit. And finally, in Acts chapter 2, 42 and further, there is a tremendous picture of the life of the early church and the joy they were experiencing. It seems like everything is well. This thing is moving like a steam engine uh, throughout Jerusalem, and it appears everything is working well. Everything's hitting on all cylinders. But in Acts chapter 4, verse 7, there is an out unbroken record of persecution and op opposition and hostility toward the church. Persecution becomes real. If the chief actor of the story in Acts 1 and 2 is the Holy Spirit, now the chief actor almost seems to be at this time Satan. And Satan is alive and well and he is the one who attempts to destroy the church. And it's true in these chapters, he's only identified once by name. But his activity in opposing the gospel and the church is discerned throughout. One of the ways you know the church you are going to and the church you're a part of is preaching the gospel is you see persecution. You see opposition. You see hostility. That's one of the marks of gospel preaching. And the devil not only attacks the church externally, but as we will see in the coming weeks, he also attacks the church internally. And so as we begin to get to chapter 4, there are two issues in the first half of the chapter that are signaled in verse 2 that are dealt with kind of in reversed order. Let me tell you what those issues are. The authority of the apostles to teach people in the name of Jesus is mentioned, but not explicitly challenged until verses 13 through 22. More immediately, their proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead is confronted with questions about the healing of the lame man. And in connection with these questions about the healing of the lame man, Acts chapters 2 and 3 imply that the restoration of Israel had begun in Jerusalem. And many had responded in faith to the preaching about Jesus. No question about that. Acts 4 shows us how the leaders of Old Covenant or Old Israel associated with the temple and the Sanhedrin were being cut off from Jesus and his prophetic successors in the healing and convicted proclamation emerge as leaders of a renewed Israel, the new Israel, the Israel of God, whose ministry is profoundly threatening to the old order. And so we're going to see something of a power struggle here between the fulfillment of the restoration of the nation in the last days and those who are still live, living under the old order. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Through them, the significance of Jesus continues to be proclaimed, and many, many people believe. And Jesus' prediction that the apostles would rule over the 12 tribes of Israel is shown here to be already in the process of fulfillment. A conflict over leadership over the people of God emerges. And later in chapter 5, we'll see it more. The ultimate focus, however, in this text is on Jesus rather than the apostles. He is the one in whom 
the resurrection from the dead and all the blessings of salvation are to be found. God has exalted Jesus to his own right hand as the prince and savior for Israel. The authority and power of the apostles is derived from him, and their essential task is to point others to him, telling the people the full message of this new life. In Acts chapter 4, we have the first of three persecution episodes in the early stage of Luke's narrative. And so what I want us to do now, I have three things that I want to dig a little deeper into to help you understand what's going on and what the meaning of this particular narrative is. And these things are quite helpful. First of all, we see a response to the lame man being healed to the authority the apostles seem to have in their teaching and the fact that they're emphasizing the resurrection of the dead and there's a reaction against that by the temple officers and also by the Sanhedrin council but in our text it first mentions who? The Sadducees. And let's think for a moment about the Sadducees. Who are the Sadducees who make such trouble for the church, both in chapter 4, verse 1, and in chapter 5, verse 17. Who are these people? And why are they so annoyed? And why are they so upset? Well, obviously, they're very religious people, no doubt. These men were not just another party of the Pharisees. They were something quite different. And listen carefully to who they were. By the way, just as an aside, these are the same people who crucified Jesus who delivered him up to be crucified. These men were not just another party at the time. They were different. It would not be too far afield to, to say that the Sadducees were liberal in their theological orientation, whereas the Pharisees were very conservative in their approach to the Old Testament. They were middle-class conservatives. Theologically, listen to this carefully, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection or life after death. So you could see how preaching the uh, resurrection might rub them the wrong way. They didn't believe this at all. As a matter of fact, they didn't believe in any kind of afterlife. Second of all, they were not looking for a Messiah. They thought the Messianic age had begun when Maccabees led a revolution many years before. In other words, they saw the kingdom of God strictly in earthly, political, humanistic terms. And since they did not uh, look for an afterlife that concentrated on excelling and doing well in this present life. And so they were focused very much on the present life and they cooperated with and were cozy with the Romans and took high positions in colonial government. These were the aristocrats of Israel. These were the wealthy and powerful sort of behind the scenes leadership in Israel. Um, the Pharisees, again, uh, were a party strong among the teachers of the law. They were very legalistically conservative and much more middle class than the Sadducees. And they did not approve of cooperation with the Romans, but they did believe the Bible quite literally. And they did hope for a Messiah and an afterlife. But when we look at these Sadducees and we look at the people who are now in opposition and annoyed and reacting against the events of the day, we are seeing the unbelief of the Sadducees, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law in contrast to the faith and repentance of the people who heard the gospel. And so the gospel going forth from uh, the apostles, Peter and John here, exposes the unbelief of the temple officers, the rulers of the law, etc. Um, now, what we learn first is that persecution of Christians is at least expected and probably inevitable. And the passages to confirm this are pretty distressing. 2 Timothy 3.12 and Matthew 5.10-12, Paul writes in 2 Timothy, you know all about the persecutions that I endured. Indeed, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, not maybe, but will be persecuted. 
Jesus' last two beatitudes out of nine are for those who are persecuted. He writes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus' Beatitudes are descriptive of what Christians really all are, and we're all supposed to be pure in heart, merciful, uh, poor in spirit, peacemakers. Thus, both Paul and Jesus teach us that we will most definitely be persecuted. Second, this description of persecution must be put alongside Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. That the early Christians enjoyed the favor of all the people. In Acts 4.22, that all the people were praising God for what had happened. And that many heard the message and believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. In other words, as a church, they were both suffering sharp persecution and enjoying, at the same time, enormous popularity and broad-based support. They were both attractive and growing, and yet hated and attacked. And this description of the early church cuts two ways. If on the one hand we experience no attacks or persecution for our faith, it might simply mean we are people pleasers and cowards. We are not taking risk in our witness. We are not being bold for Christ. On the other hand, if we experience attacks without a concomitant fruitfulness and attractiveness, if we get lots of persecution and no affirmation, it may mean that we're being persecuted for being harsh or insensitive or strident. Jesus said we would only be blessed if we were persecuted for righteousness' sake. It is quite possible and sometimes almost normal, for Christians to be persecuted not for their faith, but for their discourtesy, discourtesy, insensitivity, and a lack of warmth and respect in their dealings with others. Self-righteousness of Christians generates a lot of persecution because universally everybody opposes and hates anyone thinking they're better than them or superior to them. And so... Often persecution happens because insensitive, harsh Christians will be persecuted without praise. Cowardly Christians will have praise, but not persecution. Most Christians whose walk with God is weak really get neither. But Christians who are closest to Jesus will get both as he did. In our day and time, it costs you to stand up for Jesus. It will cost you with your co-workers. It will cost you with your neighbors. It will cost you with family. It will cost you with kids. I mean, with friends. It will cost you with uh, everyone you have a relationship with who isn't a Christian. But there's at least one thing we learn about the persecution and the unbelief. It is extremely interesting to see in this text that the liberal Sadducees and the conservative teachers of the law are completely united in their opposition to the gospel. They both hate the gospel. They had almost nothing in common intellectually. Their own positions were diametrically opposed, and they were quite hostile to each other. Yet now, they are in unity in their hatred of what? Christianity. Make strange bedfellows, because the Sadducees and the Pharisees did not get along. Except in this... They were united in their hostility to Christianity for completely different and contradictory reason, uh, reasons, some, uh, which, which we see today in our own culture. Some say it's too hard. Others say it's too easy. Some says it puts too much emphasis on the moral law. Some says it doesn't put enough. People will grow, grab hold of any intellectual argument possible to defend themselves from the claims of Christ. For that is the real problem. Christ's exclusive claims, as we see in verse 412, that intimidate everyone. The gospel offends. It is a, um, how would I put it, an equal opportunity offender. It offends everybody. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones even went so far to say that if you have not been offended by the gospel, either one, you don't understand it, or number two, you've never really believed it. Because the gospel tells you that we are so weak and so sinful and so helpless and so unable to live in a way uh, that God has called us to, called us to, that he had to send his son to come and bear our sin on a cross, which says to us, there's no other way you could be saved. He had to send his son to obey uh, the covenant of works, the law of God on our behalf so that we could receive the righteousness necessary. In other words, the gospel strips us of everything we have in self. And it leaves us naked, clinging to the Christ of the cross. Now, what's particularly troubling to the leaders about the apostles is next. Their concern is by what power and what name did you do this? And number two, that these preachers and apostles of the gospel are unschooled and rather ordinary men. What is particularly troubling to the leaders is that the apostles have presumed to be teachers, public teachers, of both religion and morality without proper uh, credentials and that is highly highly offensive to them this is not just uh, a perception of these ancient groups of people in general the upper middle class and upper classes put far more weight on degrees and professional accreditation than do the masses of working people this is because people who have made it have gone to great efforts to attend the right schools and to win the proper credential, credentials. And they tend to feel superior to the masses of people who are below them. In their worldview, pedigrees and achievement trump everything. Or, or are everything. Trump, not the president, but Trump. <laughs> like a Trump card. Thus, they look at the disciples as ordinary men, and they see losers in the great competitive game of life. So they say in verse 7, really, who do you think you are to be teaching people about religion? We have earned the right, you have not. And the gospel assaults their whole meritocratic way of thinking. This is why the gospel message is so threatening to people of the Sadducean persuasive because the gospel undermines and destroys everything they're counting on to be good people. The gospel destroys everything they believe about themselves that makes them superior. The gospel levels them, as it were. The gospel completely strips them of everything. And the essence of self-righteousness is that by who I am and what I have done, I can earn, I can pay my dues, I can accomplish things in life, and so therefore, I am superior to you. And the gospel is extremely threatening to that mindset. The gospel is extremely threatening to power structures. And you have to understand these Sadducees and the Sanhedrin Council and the temple dwellers, they were in power. And this new preaching of this itinerant prophet who they ordered to be crucified, who now has been claimed to have risen again, was threatening everything. And so in their desire to keep themselves superior, they had to find a way to shut this down. They had to find a way to completely deliver uh, themselves from the oppression of a new gospel coming through and turning everything upside down. I have seen this in culture. I have seen this in churches where people still have an, an air of superiority to them, to the, uh, toward others because of their particular station in life. And I admit there are times when I have struggled with it. And I have looked at people doing ministry for the Lord who I don't think have proper credentials and despise them thinking I'm better and I'm not. But more troubling to them 
is the fact that these ordinary men are both courageous and confident and highly dynamic and effective. This is they are especially amazed and astounded at the courage of Peter and John. How could these people without pedigree and credentials have this kind of boldness and confidence? There was a holy boldness about the preaching of these guys. There was a genuine humility, and they were astonished that they had this. They had not earned it as they had, so how could they have it? But the reason they were astonished was because they did not get it. They did not grasp the gospel. And the gospel is that one's past record is never pristine. It is full of selfishness, pride, and sin. And that therefore ordinary men can be saved and chosen and gifted for God, by God, for service. Peter and John have confidence because they have received their position with God. And their position is his service all by grace. What is unbelief? Many people see the word unbelief and they think, well, it's the opposite of faith. That's true in a way, or, or belief. But unbelief is more than that. Unbelief is writ large in the response of these Sadducees and temple officials to the preaching of the gospel. Unbelief, in its essence, is self-reliance. Faith, in its essence, is Christ-reliance. It is dependence upon him, not independence from him. It is needing Jesus. And the great thing about faith, as opposed to unbelief, is that as a Christian matures, and as a Christian grows in his or her faith, they find themselves needing and depending upon Jesus more, not less. Maturity is not growing in my independence of needing Jesus. Maturity is growing in my growing sense of utter and complete dependence upon who he is and what he's done for me for life. And so that's what Christian maturity is. But we see none of that in the religious leaders. Because a religious person is trying to accomplish and build a record worthy of acceptance to put God debt in debt to them so that he will give them what he owes them. Whereas Christianity is looking outside of ourselves, it is what Luther called trusting in an alien righteousness, and by alien righteousness, he meant a righteousness accomplished outside of us, not inside of us. Therefore, a Christian is somebody who doesn't perform well. A Christian is someone who's lost the whole idea of performing and is resting and relaxing and enjoying and relying upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is now resurrected at the right hand of the Father, our faithful high priest. That's what Christianity is. And so that is what these guys were upset by. And so the leaders are concerned, that is the leaders of the temple, about this enormous challenge to their authority. Here are a bunch of bumpkins. Here are a bunch of, you know, think about who the disciples were. Peter's a fisherman, okay? He's a fisherman. And who is uh, Matthew? Uh, Matthew's a tax collector. Look at the collection of these people. They were not the creme de la creme. They were not the top of the culture of that day. And yet God chose them and used them powerfully. But their boldness, their courage, this same Peter who denied Christ before a little girl at a fire probably 50 or 60 days earlier is now standing. And you've got to look at his preaching in the sermon. I mean, he's going for the throat. He is saying, this Jesus whom you crucified. Man, boldness. He's not backing down from anything. He's not afraid of anyone. Why? Because he's filled with the Spirit. And the filling of the Spirit in the book of Acts is always associated with the proclamation of the gospel. Every time the filling of the Spirit is mentioned, it is, has something to do with empowerment and enablement to preach with boldness, yes, with authority, yes, and with compassion as well. 
And that is what we see here. And they couldn't compute that. It just, they couldn't figure out how that's going on. So here are uncredentialed men proclaiming the sovereignty of a man, Jesus, and that the religious re leaders rejected and put to death. And if the people keep listening to this, the leader's power is done. They are undermined. They have lost their position. And they were the gatekeepers of the public religious discourse. So they asked, by what power or what name do you do this? And Peter res responds, obviously full of the Holy Spirit, with shrewdness and boldness. First, Peter focuses on the healing of the crippled man. That's what he focuses on, which he calls an act of kindness. Now, it's hard to ignore when you have a man that everybody knows used to sit at the temple gate, crippled, begging asking for alms and here he is now and he's over 40 years of age so he's been doing this a long time maybe all of his life and here he is now in the flesh standing beside Peter and John what do you do with that I mean I, I knew about a I had a philosophy professor in my undergraduate degree in Texas tell me that when he grew up as a young boy People in Texas, at least in his town, did not believe there was such a thing as an airplane. They did not believe that people could fly. And so he said one day uh, an airplane was going to land in his hometown. And so they all gathered out by the runway. Here it comes. They see it flying. It lands on the uh, tarmac, comes to a stop. And so the uh, man leading the uh, event turns to them and says now can you see airplanes can fly and they all denied that the plane was flying that it was some kind of trick some kind of magic they wouldn't believe it but here hard hearts the fact and presence of the healed man of course is evidence that some kind of enormous power and authority was present in the apostles so by lifting up the healed cripple and saying well we obviously do have power to do what we're doing so it's just a matter of determining its source and then Peter provides that source it is by the name of Jesus that this man stands healed Again, it's hard to refute. Jesus has been doing these completely authenticated miracles all over Palestine. But third, Peter boldly and smartly describes this Jesus as the one whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. This is brilliant. Peter is saying that since Jesus is still healing as he used to, that means he's not dead. Then he moves from defense and goes into attack. He says, he is alive, though you killed the source of this great healing power, Jesus. Finally, Peter quickly says that this one man's physical cure through Christ is a picture of the salvation from sin offered through Christ. And salvation is found in no one else. So in summary, his argument is like this. He says, you can't deny that we do have power and authority, or this man standing here would not be healed. Two, this power comes from Jesus, who you know did this all the time during his ministry. Number three, and if he's still, still healing today, that shows he's still alive despite your efforts to destroy him, and he offers not just physical healing, but spiritual healing. The one who can heal like that can save you. How will you escape if you reject it? Needless to say, this message is brilliant as it is bold. It is the result of the Holy Spirit. Despite an extremely sharp attack on these leaders, they were too astounded by it and blown away by the brilliance and courage to even get angry. They were totally undone by it. Peter's argument all turned on the healed man and thus the leaders were unable to refute it now I want to look closely at verse 12 because this is the scandal of particularity or the exclusive nature of the gospel that really bothers 
lots of people. Peter insisted that there's no other name given among men under heaven by, what, by which you must be saved. Peter proclaimed that fearlessly. There is no man who is God except Jesus, and no one could die for the sins of others. That is why Peter proclaims him faithfully. Now you may say, hearing that, that that is terribly narrow. And my answer to that is, yes, it's true. It is. That's true. It is narrow. You may say it sounds so exclusive. And my answer to that again would be, yes, it's exclusive. You may say it sounds intolerant. And in a sense, it is intolerant. But also, true. That is the point. It is true. The gospel is both incredibly exclusive and incredibly inclusive. It is exclusive because it denies any other religion, religious attempt to right yourself with God and inherit eternal life through any other religion. And a lot of people cave when it comes to this point. A lot of people get a little shaky because our culture is so into um, pluralism and the whole pluralism argument is there are many different options but the question is, are they all equally valid? And the answer of the Bible is no. You can have every kind of religion in the world lived up, uh, 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 lined up, and here's the difference. The difference between every religion is do this and live, and the gospel is live and do this. That's the difference. The difference between Christianity and every other religion, which makes it incredibly inclusive, is exclusive and narrow and intolerant in that Christ is the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said that. And he meant it when he said it. Why? He's the only one qualified to save you. He became what you were, sin accepted, so that you could become what He is, righteous before the Father. Never God. You will never be God. You're always going to be a creature. But you become in union with Him. You get His righteousness. You're adopted into the family. The Holy Spirit indwells you. You will live forever as an heir to the King. You will rule with Him when he returns. But the incredible exclusivity is because he's the only one who is God, who was incarnate in human flesh and lived the life you should have lived, lived the life you were required to live, lived the obedient life that Adam failed to live. And as the second Adam fulfilled all righteousness, and then died the death I deserve to die, and you deserve to die. No other religious leader has gone to any bar of God and any cross and died for my sins, not one. And no other religious leader has ever emerged from the tomb on the third day, alive again, and resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. That is why He is the only name by which you can be saved. But the inclusivity of the name of Jesus is this. He saves by grace. He doesn't save by works. He saves by grace. Anyone can be saved. All you have to do is turn from striving, turn from yourself, turn from trying to be a better person, turn from trying to achieve a perfect record or a good record or a passable record and just look outside of yourself and cling to Him and trust in Him and He will save you eternally in that moment. So I do not apologize and the New Testament does not apologize for the exclusive claims of Christ. They're exclusive because they're true. It's the truth. No one, no one is like Jesus. The uniqueness of the God-man who saved you. No one like Jesus. And we shouldn't apologize for it. Now, let's continue the rest of the text because we're almost done. And I can see the end of the race. So pick up with me. Uh... Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, you know what liberal scholars do backflips over this. They say this, if the Sanhedrin, which 
uh, had its own court, and it was sort of a semicircular kind of uh, seating arena with over 70 people in the Sanhedrin Council. They were called the 70. And uh, whoever was being accused was put in the middle standing before them. And so they had met with them, they had dismissed them, and now they talked about it. Well, who, who told them what they said? Luke wasn't there. Peter wasn't there. John wasn't there. Who told them what the Sanhedrin council said after they left? And how did Luke know what they said? Well, I have two options for you. One was probably Gamaliel, who mentored Paul, the apostle, because Gamaliel was a, a, a very authoritative member of the Sanhedrin and perhaps would have relayed what was said to Paul or at that time he wasn't Paul he was Saul of Tarsus and you know who might have been sitting in the council at that moment Saul of Tarsus who later became Paul the Apostle told Luke what the Sanhedrin said of course we're gonna run into him in a few in, in a few more uh, chapters we'll run into him but in my opinion, that's probably what it was. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let's warn them to speak no more in anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Here we have an example of civil disobedience in the Bible. Where, in this case, religious leaders, who are also political too, there's such an intertwining of all aspects of what they were. Very cozy with the Romans. Here's where the authorities tell them what? Not to speak no more in the name of Jesus. And they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because the people uh, for all were praising God for what had happened. I remember sitting in an ethics class with R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul was giving a lecture on civil disobedience. And you've heard this before, but it's always good to remember this. When is it right for the church to disobey the civil magistrates or the civil authority? And it is right to disobey. It is right not to be submissive. When they command you to do something, God forbids, or they forbid you to do something, God commands. Now, as we look at our current world, in particular the coronavirus, I think some Christians have, in the name of civil disobedience, wanted to, and perhaps have, rebelled against the state. I could not do that, and here's why. Nobody in civil authority has told me I can't worship. Nobody in civil authority has told me I can't preach the Word of God. Now, we may be doing it online, but there are situational issues that always come into play for an ethical decision. And the situational issues is, normatively, I must obey God rather than man. That is, if authorities are commanding me to do something God forbids, or commanding me uh, uh, to forbid, uh, or forbidding me to do something God commands. And in this case, I don't think you have a leg to stand on to be civilly disobedient. I think being civilly disobedient in this case borders on sin. That's what I believe. And I believe here is a classic case of civil disobedience where they had put them in jail, obviously, and uh, absolutely uh, told them not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. There's only one other example of civil disobedience I know of in Scripture. And you remember in the book of Exodus, around chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's something called the uh, handmaids who were they were really uh, what do you call those that help with birth what do you call those oh, midwife, midwife. <laughs> thank you that word just escaped my whole head for a minute these midwives were commanded by Pharaoh to do what to kill every what every male child that was born in the book of Exodus and the midwives did what 
They didn't do it. They refused to do it. Of course, Moses was one of those born. But they refused to do it. And in that case, someone was commanding them to do something God forbade. Uh, and so we have to be careful in our knee-jerk reaction to jump to civil disobedience. Otherwise, we are disobeying God when we do that because Romans 13 tells us to submit to the authorities. So some of you may wonder why we hadn't pushed back against some of this. And the reason why we haven't pushed back against some of this is this. This is the biblical understanding of civil disobedience. Now, am I pained by not being able to worship together with all of you every single Sunday? Does it grieve me we can't all be together and worship? Yeah, but at the same time, uh, it is my responsibility and the responsibility of the session of this church to lead, guide, and protect this flock. And we need to protect the flock. We are called to do that. And so it's a complicated issue, granted. But it's an issue which I invite you to think a lot more about. Uh, you have to be careful with those kind of things. I remember one time I was visited by someone. And by the way, you couldn't be more anti-abortion than I am. I grieve, I pray almost daily that God would bring judgment upon that happening. But I had a man come to my door one day who was anti-abortion and he worked for Operation Rescue. And he wanted to come in and talk with me. And then so he looked at me and he said, well, are you a Christian? I said, some people think so. No, I said, yeah, yeah, I, I, I certainly trust in Jesus. He said, well, then next week we're going to chain ourselves to the abortion clinic. We're going to get a chain, chain ourselves. He said, I expect you to come, right? And I said, uh, really? I said, so you think I should protest abortion by chaining myself to the clinic doors so no one can get in. He said, yes. I said, you're encouraging me to civil disobedience. He said, yes. I said, well, let me ask you this question. I said, as much as I hate it, and you're going to think I'm a liberal because I'm a Presbyterian, number one, and you're going to think I'm a liberal because of the answer I'm about to give you. But you've got to think, people. You have to think, not react. You have to think. You have to think biblically. And so I said to this young man, I don't remember his name, I said, has God commanded anybody to get an abortion? Uh, I mean, I, I know, has, has, has the state or the nation commanded anyone to have an abortion? Is infanticide being practiced? Uh, I know it's something that God forbids. I know it's something God hates. But is the state commanding you to have an abortion? Are they taking advantage of people? Absolutely. Is it utterly and uh, wrong and an injustice? Absolutely. But I said, I can't disobey the law and chain myself to a clinic because that's not civil disobedience. I said, you have to think these things through. I said, I think you're reacting. And I said, I think there are better ways you can oppose abortion than going and chaining yourself and getting arrested and getting put in jail and then coming around telling people like me, I'm not as righteous as you are because I won't chain myself to a clinic. Well, he left, and I didn't think he was all that happy about what I said. Ran into the guy six months later. Ran into him. Wasn't looking for him. He wasn't looking for me. Might have been in a bookstore. I happened to spend time there. Ran into him. And he said, Pastor? I said, hi. I said, how's it going? He said, can I talk to you a minute? I said, sure. So he pulled me aside, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, Pastor, I want you to know that I no longer work for Operation Rescue, and because of your conversation with me, I have decided to attend seminary and learn how to study the Bible. That's what he told me. And I said, well, I'm encouraged to hear that. I said, I hope they don't mess you up any worse than you are going in. <laughs> but uh, I said, that's wonderful. But people, we have to be, we have to be careful uh, one of the clear marks of fundamentalism is being reactionary. And we have to carefully think through things. By the way, what Dan gave us in the gospel moment was what I call careful thinking about an issue biblically and confessionally. Thinking carefully about issues. 
And that is the leadership you have at this church. That is what we will do, we promise you, is every issue is we want to think carefully and not just go off and react. There are times when I get emotional and I do want to react. And uh, I understand that. Now, that's it. And I'm not trying to offend anyone, but I'm telling you what I understand the scriptures to be here. And so they threatened him, and then in verse 22, here's the closure. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Compelling case. But I have to tell you, nothing upset the old Israel leadership more than the power of the gospel. Because it destroyed. You know, deconstruction is a popular philosophical approach now, which basically says when you read any text, you have to deconstruct a text because all texts are about power, about trying to exercise power over people. Well, what the gospel did was totally deconstruct these guys' religion and position. And boy, is that threatening. Boy, does that expose and that's what the gospel does. But once we turn from ourselves and turn to the gospel and believe it, we are liberated. And we have the opportunity to boldly speak of Christ with respect, winsomely, sensitively, without being harsh, without being re reactionary, but with genuine compassion and care, yet at the same time with truth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the word of the Lord. It is truly powerful. It is alive. And it cuts us. It just cuts us inside out. It exposes us. It exposes my sin every time I read it. It exposes my heart every time I hear it preached. Father, I thank you that I have a Savior who's a friend of sinners. I thank you I have a Savior whose compassion overcomes my fear to go to him when I'm guilty or when I'm broken. And Father, thank you for a Savior like Jesus. Now, uh, as we continue to worship, I would encourage all of you who are listening, thank you for your faithful support to the church during this time. Thank you for uh, continuing to give. It is a blessing to my soul and to our heart as a church. And uh, we give God praise for that because we know he's the one that moves any of us to do anything for him. And as I look at these religious leaders, Father, grieves my soul. Men so steeped in religion and tradition for years, hearts were so hard that when they heard the truth, they only wanted to kill the messenger boys. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.